0: this show is for you.
1: We promise to bring you real and authentic conversations with parents and experts who are committed to making their family their life's most important work.
0: This show will help you take a stand for your family and to raise your children by design, not default. Well, hello everyone. Welcome to the Family Brand Podcast. Melissa and I have the honor of interviewing Thomas McConkie today. And I just have to say, we met Thomas and his wife, Gloria, and their beautiful little boy, we call him Baby June in the Smith home. Uh, we met them just...
2: He's the cutest baby <laughs> ever.
0: Yeah. When, when Thomas and Gloria came out to Hawaii to to visit the Hadleys, who are friends, then that, that's how we met Thomas and Gloria. When they came out, I said, hey, we really want to hang out with Baby June and we're okay with seeing you and Gloria as well. <laughs> but we love, yeah, we love uh, Baby June, but they're the coolest family. We only met, what? two months ago, maybe
3: two, three yeah, uh, recently,
0: but I don't know. It's like meeting Thomas and Gloria. It's one of those situations. Like I know these people I've known them longer than just the last two or three months. And so we just really honored Thomas to have you come on, uh, with us. And what we wanted to talk about today is this, you know, something that I think Melissa and I have both, you know, we've experienced it in our individual lives. We've experienced it in family dynamics. And, you know, it's just this idea of like, how do you navigate times in your life when you have a faith crisis mm. And or probably and and how do you show up for others in a loving, supportive way when they're navigating a faith crisis? Mm-hmm. And then I think you 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 combine all that inside of a family dynamic. <laughs> it's like yeah, it's a lot to navigate, right? And so Thomas wrote this really amazing book about how to how to navigate a faith crisis and how to show up for mm-hmm. others when um, navigating a faith crisis. And I think one of the things that we're just kind of interested about too, Thomas, is it just seems like in general more and more people and more and more families in throughout the world are leaving the religion they grew up in or the church they grew up in or faith. Mm-hmm. And yeah, what do you see as some of the impacts
3: of that? Mm. Those are big questions. I think maybe it's helpful if I give a touch of background of, about like what I bring to the questions. Sure. And we can just elaborate and kind of explore from there. I'm trained as a meditator. And it was I can't remember, maybe 10 or 15 years into my meditation practice that I became more sensitized to the dynamics of human development, because I found actually as a meditator that I was changing in ways that were actually really pleasing to me. There are positive changes in my life. So I got curious about how human beings develop, transform and so forth. So I'm trained as a meditator. And also as a developmentalist, I've been doing research in developmental psychology for the last 10 years, kind of looking at transformation. One of the how shall we say one of the features of human transformation is that um, we can experience crisis. I grew up in. a religious community. I was raised Latter-day Saint, so it was an intensely religious environment. When people experience crisis in that context, sometimes it's associated with what people call a faith crisis. But the phenomenon is much broader than just faith crisis. When we talk about faith crisis, we're really talking about identity crisis and who we take ourselves to be. And uh, when people you know, kind of sound the alarms and say I'm in crisis, what they are usually saying in one way or another is that I'm not who I thought I was. Everything is different than what I took it to be. I'm unmoored, I don't know what comes next in my life. Maybe everything I've ever known is a lie. And, and this is just, uh, I mean, for reasons we can get into, really broadly speaking, uh, identity crisis, that's might be the broadest way I can define it. I think it might be more common in this generation than perhaps it ever has been on the planet. So I would just, I'll start there and then maybe we can dive deeper in one particular area if it's interesting.
0: No, I love that. And would you mind actually, because I was so fascinated in your book and then what you shared with us, how did you navigate that? Because, you know, growing up Latter-day Saint, <laughs> Yeah. you then, you for all intents and purposes left, Yeah.
3: you, know, you can say the religion for how long? I mean, yeah, 20 years, I, I, in my identity crisis, I freaked out and moved to the other side of the planet and hung out in China and waited for it to kind of cool off, (laughs) (laughs) which I wouldn't necessarily recommend, by the way. (laughs) And
0: that, and that led you down a spiritual path of really more Buddhism, correct?
3: Yeah, I've I've been a practicing Buddhist for almost 25 years, so I I mean, it's been a that Buddhism is a big part of my identity and my spiritual formation. So I you know really appreciate the Buddhist tradition.
0: Yeah, I think it is amazing because I love this. You brought up this idea of identity because when we talk about family brand and this idea of having a family brand or having these values, we're having more and more families, including Lindsay just recently. Mm -hmm. She said, "Chris, I have these family values." That I have helped us shape our family's identity, mm-hmm. but I've been surprised at how much it's helping me shape my individual identity. Absolutely, I just, yeah. I just think that's one of the biggest challenges that we wrestle with throughout our lives. Is like,
3: mm-hmm.
0: who are we? You know, and <laughs> and not only who are we, but do we like who we are? Yeah. And I teach a uh, I teach an early morning class to the youth at our church um, every morning. And actually, this this morning, it's so funny, we're talking about this. This morning, we were talking about Jacob. In Genesis, and when he wrestles with the angel and they wrestle all night long, you know, <laughs> it's like kind of a weird story. It's like one of the kind of coolest to me and kind of most different, you know, stories. And then eventually he realizes he's wrestling with God. And I guess I never really, it never really occurred to me until I read it this last time and I've been studying it this week that the thing he was really wrestling with God about the most was his identity, like who he was. Yeah. And when that hit me, it was just like, And if you think about the story of Jacob, like he'd kind of been this dude that, you know, was a little bit deceptive, you know, cheated his brother out of his blessing. And his identity probably wasn't like, in his mind, the way he saw himself and his identity probably wasn't great. You know, probably didn't like who he was a whole lot. Hmm. And he has this wrestle with God and basically won't let go of him. And, you know, the Hmm. angel's like, Dude, you got to let me go. It's morning time. right? I don't know. I got to get to work. You know. <laughs> I've got
3: other people to wrestle with. You're not the only person having an identity crisis. <laughs>
0: yeah, but I love the like. I never just never caught it. Like he's like, yeah, I won't. I'm not letting you go though until you give me a blessing. And I think the mm-hmm. blessing he's looking for, like, I'm not gonna let you go until you help me understand who I am. Yeah. And yeah, he in that story, totally. he literally gives him a new name, like a new identity. Mm-hmm. And then I just, but I just think that's one of the greatest things that we'll wrestle with. Yeah throughout our lives is our identity.
3: Yes. Love it. <laughs> these,
2: this topic is so like broad and big and these questions, they're like, they do impact so much. So if we throw any more, like, bam! i was just worried, like, Oh, I don't want to throw any, like solve the problems of the world, Thomas, like, <laughs> in this conversation. But I would love to hear what you would have to say about, because I know it is challenging when you find yourself in that, in that spot where what, how you see yourself and what you've believed your whole life you're questioning, like what would be your, what would you say to someone maybe in that place right now?
3: Yeah. Um, I, I can only speak of impressions coming up in my heart in the moment. I mean, I'm like you two daily asking questions about who am I, you know, and discovering that I don't know who I am today. It's, different than yesterday uh, so if I just reflect with you in the moment um, and you know of course my my Buddhist sensibilities will come through here one of the great I think insights of the Buddhist tradition they call it, one of the marks of existence. It's what they mean by the marks of existence is it goes so deep, it affects everything. And that's the mark of impermanence. Everything is impermanent. Everything is always changing. In other words, I, whoever I take myself to be, it's not fixed. I have no fixed nature. My nature is to be changing. And that's tricky. We, we get into some deep waters really quickly here because from a spiritual perspective, Change is good. We we need to be open to change and willing to wrestle with the angel and willing to be given a new name, to discover who a truer version of ourselves. And yet, if we look what if we look at what Saint Paul called the natural man, the natural man loves to be comfortable in the body and loves to have answers in the mind. I, I like this is actually a formulation from my a longtime Buddhist teacher of mind says the prime directive of the body is to get comfortable. The prime directive of the mind is to get answers. So here we are, these human beings that are, we could say, animal and spirit at once. And what the animal wants, which is safety, security, predictability, militates against spiritual growth. It's like wrestling and saying, no, I don't want change. I just, I want homeostasis. I want things how they are. And yet, when we're honest with ourselves, when we have a conversation with friends, with family, if we listen, we immediately attune to like a quality in them that wants the exact opposite of homeostasis. They want to become, they want to transcend the self they are today and become something new. So I'm just kind of laying it out here. These are really intense dynamics as human beings. And when we get too much change, We feel like we're in crisis when we get too much stasis, not enough change. We feel like we're stagnating and wasting our lives. We don't even feel alive. Mm -hmm. So how do we artfully include these different dynamics of, we could say, stability and change that creates like a dynamic, rewarding life? I'm just riffing here, but that's how I might think about it.
0: That's really beautiful. I've never heard that, but yeah. So we want to be comfortable in the body and in the mind. We want answers. Right. <laughs> one of the things I really appreciate about, and you know what, I'm actually going to go back. I'm going to take back my words at the beginning. I said this is going to be about navigating a faith crisis. This is going to be about finding your true identity, which might at times feel like,
3: yeah, faith crisis. Maybe you know, yeah, it's like a more different accurately. way so, of saying, yeah, it's a different facet of the same question. I think
0: one of the things I really appreciated about the book was how you took what some might call a faith crisis and said, what if a faith crisis isn't actually a crisis right what if it actually can be a good thing what if it's right. an opportunity to like look deeper you know because most of the most of the amazing breakthroughs that we've had at any point in time in our lives or, or, or you look at other people it started with doubt it started with questions like those don't necessarily have to be a bad thing so can you yeah. can you speak to that just that maybe yeah. helping people maybe reframe what they think about a faith crisis or the, yeah. like the negativity around having doubts
3: yeah, I, I can say a few things, um, and I, I love. Thank you for pivoting the direction. Like, yeah, we're we're in a discussion right now and an exploration of who are we and what is the true self, and how can all of us participating in this conversation right now discover a truer version of ourselves? That to me, that's like such a. It's an afternoon well spent after asking that question. Um, I, I think I write in the book. And, you know, maybe some people have heard this. I don't want it to become cliche, but it's informative to me. In in Chinese, they refer to a crisis as a dangerous opportunity. Weiji. It's a different, I mean, crisis, you know, calls up whatever associations it does to our English speaking ear. But to think of a crisis as a dangerous opportunity, I hear that meaning like, well, this actually could go very badly. There is true danger here. Things could go wrong. And yet... You know don't let a good opportunity go to waste don't let a good crisis go to waste i think is what we say in english so yeah exercising caution knowing that there there's like a real chance of failure and and just being totally devastated we also you know hopefully become available to something bigger than ourselves um so
0: yeah what about doubt like i I think i've had this relationship like oh doubt is bad doubt is wrong like i should never doubt my faith i should never doubt my religion i should never doubt myself and i i just gained this new perspective of doubt from yeah and it's almost a central role in discovering who we are like i i am starting to realize like you go back to the story of jacob again man like probably a ton of doubt a ton of like crisis i mean esau was coming with a men of 400 people to kill him you know the guy was in some serious crisis Right. They just find that in the depths of his crisis, yeah. in the depths of his doubt, kind of finds his identity. I I, I don't know if that's symbolic or.
3: Let me, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. I. It's interesting. I have so many kind of divergent impressions and feelings right now. I'm just sensing into like what would be the most valuable to explore. Um, Get back to the prime directive. The mind wants answers. So doubt is like the opposite of what the mind likes. Doubt, if we pay attention, like if we bring mindful awareness to the body and mind in the moment we're doubting, it's like, I don't want to feel like this. I feel awful. And so we tend to compulsively race towards an answer, even if deep down we know that's a pretty crummy answer, like that's not going to hold up. But we'll we'll settle for any answer in those moments where we're really beset by doubt. So in a sense, like a spiritual practice. And again, I'm taking a page from The Buddhist Playbook, but a, a deep spiritual practice is to bring full awareness to the experience of doubt in the body, doubt in the mind and be as open as we possibly can to it. Because when we welcome that experience and it creates a kind of dynamism in the psyche, it actually unleashes a kind of developmental transformative process that the, the natural man in us is like, no, 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 I got the answers. I know everything that I need to know for now and I'm just gonna stay put, thank you very much. So like how much of that intensity how much of the discomfort of the experience of doubt are we willing to tolerate in a given moment? I think that's that's an interesting question to me. <laughs> yeah, I love that question.
2: Yeah, and, and something not that I've been learning moving here to Hawaii is feeling, because I would say in the place where we lived before, we lived there in the same home for seven years, eight years. And although we're not entirely talking about faith, we're talking about comfort, I was very Yeah, comfortable there and it was a big leap to like change something and do something new move to a new state but as as we've taken that leap and gotten uncomfortable it's been amazing to see what what has been able to come of that for me and for our family
3: totally beautiful i love that really nice. it reminds me i was in the back of a cab in shanghai many years ago with a couple foreigners who were uh we had a business relationship, I'll just say vaguely, but uh, we were just talking about it, I don't know what, and one of them, like, out of nowhere in the conversation is just like, your brain is operating at so many levels right now. He just stopped the conversation and made this comment about me. And like, I, I I intuited in the moment. It's like, oh yeah, like I've been in China. So like, it's such a different environment I have to be on my toes all the time like all the weird smells and sounds and mm. it, it, like there's something about a novel environment that just brings us to life and I think you know that was a big part of my own formation to live abroad in a very foreign country that kind of like maybe maybe introduced more novelty to my system than I could bear at times but um that that's the practice we're exploring here like how much newness can we tolerate
0: yeah. Newness, doubt,
3: uncertainty, whatever, you know, that could be. A yeah, lot. exactly. All related. And can I say something? Because we're we're meditating here, let's say, among other things, on family brand and the, the process of being in a family. We're talking about like letting doubt into our own experience, working with that discomfort. This is not just self-indulgence, as I see it. If, if we develop a deeper intimacy with our own doubt, uncertainty, our own unknowability, when we see a family member change dramatically, when like my sibling, my parent is not who they, like today is not who they were yesterday. If I have a deep relationship with change and doubt and novelty, I can actually embrace their change as much as I have learned to embrace my own. And if there's any rigidity in me, if there's any part of me that is change resistant, that change is going to be a mirror reflected back to me. It's going to their change might even drive me more crazy than my own change. So there's a there's a spiritual practice here, but also like deep relationship um, that it engenders when we cultivate this basic skill, I think.
2: Yeah. I love, I love that you brought that up because I think that is, you know, in the context of families, that is a really difficult thing to navigate when the person before you is not, like you said, who they, who they used to be or who they were yesterday.
0: Right. Or maybe even more dangerous, who you think they should be. Yeah, Mm -hmm. totally. Or who you want them to be or who you think they need to be. You know, it's like, (laughs) (laughs) and so I, but I, I, yeah, that's a, that's another new connection that I hadn't made so the, the, the new perspective I got around doubt, Thomas, and uncertainty and identity is, like, let's just say, for example, my identity around how I see myself, Yeah. right? If I have a, if I have a doubt that creeps in around my, my ability to go do what I want to do in the world or make a difference or make an impact or like launch family brand, right? Like I'm, I'm really comfortable with campfire Effect, you know, that business. Then let's say I'm starting this new thing called family brand and I have this doubt around, could I really do it? And will families really embrace it? I think in the past, what I would do with that doubt is that I would try to like silence it and like push it away and just like yeah. positive self-talk and yeah. meditate the doubt away or yeah. affirmation, the doubt away. And I think I might be really <laughs> missing something by doing that and trying to suppress it from where I got from the book. It's like, Oh, what if you just leaned into the doubt to see like, well, what, it, what's the deeper exploration here that like right. not being afraid of this doubt, it might really lead me to a breakthrough or a possibility or a new insight. Right, And in fact, there might not be any other way to fully continually step into who you are without the doubt. Like it's actually, you know, just not seeing it as something that gets in the way, but seeing it as actually necessary. Yes. Welcoming yes. it almost in some ways, maybe being a little bit grateful for it, right. but the connection that you just helped me make is the more I do that I'm less shaken or intimidated or fearful of like when other people start to doubt. Cause like I can understand it and that maybe even come from a place of compassion.
3: Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Beautiful what's
0: been your experience of when you
3: when
0: when you've seen the two different approaches like a family member is struggling with their identity whether that's in in around their faith their religion or just something in their life yeah what is the approach of me being freaked out yeah well, what's that like for that person over there who's in the in the faith crisis or in the doubt and then their family's response or reaction is to freak out even not intentionally sometimes
3: right Well, what comes up for me, if I, you know, and I have a lot of siblings, I come from a big family. If you come from a big family, you're guaranteed to always have at least one crisis brewing at a given time, if not many. So when you say that, I'm like, oh, how many siblings can I think of who are in a tough spot? Um, I mean, when you talk about having a fundamental friendliness towards not only my own doubt, but another person's doubt and crisis, the word that comes up is faith. It's like... In my own life, I've had an intention for many years to romance doubt, to like have a deep, a genuine relationship with doubt. So much so that I've seen so many times on the other side of doubt what comes up as a new kind of knowledge, a new kind of knowing, a new kind of faith. So I I think about one particular person who's dear in my life and close to me who's, you know in a process of his own kind of transformation and we could say crisis of sorts that doubt he feels it stimulates a deep quality of faith in me like I deeply trust his doubt I I trust how generative his experience of doubt is doubt 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 has its genius right doubt doubt can become caustic and toxic and there's a certain kind of doubt that's neurotic and we're just spinning our wheels all day and wearing ourselves down and we want to avoid that kind of doubt but the deep like the true true doubt like letting it deep into the body deep into the heart and letting it do its work like really work our soil deeply that is you know turning the soil for next season's harvest that's preparing the way for newness to come through so I, I have you can hear me kind of eulogizing it i have like a real respect like a devotional respect towards genuine doubt fierce doubt
0: <laughs> that's amazing but <laughs> well, i love how intentional you are with your language around it you even said i have this friend who's going through a transformation yeah you know maybe you might call it a crisis just mm. even that like that reframe of how we look at someone mm. in a crisis, it's like mm. there could be in a crisis or there could be in, a, in, a, in an ongoing transformation.
3: Yeah.
2: I would love to. I'm also taking words back from the beginning, but <laughs> I think it could really serve listeners to just hear a little bit more of your story are thomas
0: <laughs> before we do that can i ask him one question just right off the heels yeah. of what he just said mm-hmm. how do you then thomas because that's one thing i realized from your book too is there there's a type of doubt that can like take you out yeah it doesn't serve you it is cynical it is like yeah could you give someone like that's maybe not used to exercising this muscle and it's like right, right, getting into this of, yeah just some cautionary or or advice of how do you decide when doubt is leading you to a deeper sense of self and transformation and identity and like or versus, versus it's really turning into something not useful
3: totally yeah like so red flag indicators that your doubt is not the right kind of doubt um like the the healthy the healthy unsaturated fat kind mm-hmm. of <laughs> or the, the trans saturated fat right. doubt and the like, kind of <laughs> doubt you get from an avocado or a the
2: coconut oil. Well, earlier, <laughs> I, was, I was
3: actually, I was going to
0: say you should be known as Dr. Doubt. And then now that you're taking it this direction, Thomas, there might, we, we might be really onto something
3: here. Dr. Doubt, that is a practice that I do not want to open. That <laughs> I don't know if I could handle that. But, so, yeah, if we're talking about like the trans fats of doubt, it's something like we become, we become ossified in our doubt meaning i start to have faith in my doubt i start to believe my doubts like my doubts are the truth and they kind of take over i become sclerotic i can't change or move or be adaptive anymore that would be bad doubt what we can do when we notice like a doubt coming up again and again I'll, i'll tell you a really practical approach that i've used is to like speak to my own doubt speak to the voice of doubt as though it were an entity with great wisdom and say like what is it that you want me to know what's your nugget what's your kernel and the, to like really take that in because like when we're braced against doubt when like you said it yourself when I'm like trying to suppress it when I'm trying to marginalize it when I'm trying to like pep talk my way out of doubt we actually end up missing the real gift that the doubt is bringing I think whatever kind of doubt that I'm kind of abandoning my metaphor I think it was ill-conceived fat trans fats saturated fat whatever let's get rid of that and I'll just say I'll cut to the chase and say when we're willing to hear the genuine wisdom of any aspect of ourself in this case doubt almost invariably we hear something like here's what I'm trying to tell you I'm bringing up doubt because I don't think you've considered these really important aspects of the situation. And I don't want you to move ahead without really deeply taking this possibility. in. there's always wisdom in it. So I think to, to let go of our notion that doubt is bad for us, it's unhealthy. It feels rough, like it, naturally we brace against it. But we, if we relax into it and dialogue with it a little bit deeper, it reveals its wisdom. That's probably the most useful thing I could say about that to the listeners.
2: <laughs> yeah, I love that. And trusting that whatever this doubt is bringing up is going to lead you to a place where you find more truth for you, for yourself or more right. whatever it is at the other side of it.
3: Yeah, exactly. So maybe, does that feel complete? I think maybe another, a little bit of a loose end here on doubt we hear this voice in our head, this voice of doubt, and we start to believe it. In which case, I would say doubt gets toxic when we don't doubt our doubt deeply enough. Yes, yes, doubt what you know. That's, that's what we do naturally. But also doubt that you know something about who you are, but also doubt that you don't know something about who you are. It's, it's being more doubtful, actually, that helps us out of the doubt cycle. You could say that's another yeah. way of saying it. Perhaps less clear than what I well, just no.
2: said. <laughs> no, I think it makes sense. Yeah, I love it. And
0: I love that there's wisdom and doubt. And I've just, I've seen doubt before though, in even in my own life that it leads me to a place of like becoming very cynical and like, yes, not compassionate, you know, resentful mm-hmm. of people, re- you know, harming, you know, close relationships. It's like, I, okay, that kind of doubt right. isn't leading me to more faith and, More of who I am, right? So I just, yeah, that was that was really helpful. But yeah, I personal story. So I love to your story is so cool. Just whatever you're willing (laughs) to share. And I think
2: I don't have anything specific in mind. I'm like, oh, but I just think your personal journey really, what I know of it. I I don't know that I even know your whole journey, but I think it really speaks to exactly maybe what we're talking about.
3: Let me, yeah, in the context of doubt and identity crisis, let me think about like moments on my path where. Doubt felt really vital. I mean, you know, one aspect of my path that was very challenging, um, but it it turned out to be a really healthy and growthful part of my life was doubting what people told me. You know, like any human being who grows up anywhere, um, the elders told me what was important, what was true, what was laudable and respectable, all that stuff, and there was something in me that just doubted it from the very beginning like is is there no other way that was difficult as a youngster because you know i was i was a teenager where you know most of us come into our voice of doubt as a teenager and we start to ask new questions but i didn't really have anything to go on from there right i i didn't have um like a greater kind of tradition or holding environment to like keep me from spinning my wheels and just endless doubts. So it, was, it, it brought up a really disorienting time for me in life. It was very difficult. But in hindsight, the doubt is what kind of cleared everything away to make room for something new. Um, so I. I, I find I'm speaking vaguely in the moment and I know when I listen to speakers who are not actually revealing themselves, I start to yawn and my eyes glaze over like, what are you actually saying? <laughs> well, I'll, so I'll make it interesting here. Um, I grew up in a in a, a Christian community and there's a particular brand of Christian faith where I grew up and I had intense doubts about it. Very intense. I just, you could say I didn't buy it. It just didn't, It wasn't like getting into the marrow of my bones. So I'm like, no, I reject it. And I, like I said, I kind of had my freak out years in high school and moved to Asia. And that's how I coped. But, you know, with the luxury of hindsight, I look back and that period of doubt actually tilled the soil for me. And what I found later in life was a profound sense of faith. Like a, a faith that feels deeper than deep. And it was it was beyond any concept I was given or brought up with. It was it's a faith that's beyond even my own understanding, but it's just it's just like right coming right from the heart of me. And that's the paradox here that like for me to discover true faith, it happens to be I happen to have Christian faith and be very devoted to the, you know, the Christian tradition, but it need not be faith in any particular thing. All I'm illustrating is that at the very, very, very heart of true doubt sprang up this quality of true faith. And so I learned in my own experience that these two go together and it would have, it would have been a tremendous loss had I not gone all the way with doubt because I would have, had I not doubted so fully in my own faith crisis, I think I would have ended up somewhere like taking half measures, settling for some kind of superficial, socially respectable kind of faith that actually didn't come from my true core. I can, yeah, You guys a- are smiling, so I can tell it got a little more interesting.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think that's- I hope. Well, I, and what I love about the story is that, you're not just saying that like like practically speaking or theoretically speaking it's like no it really like the very brand of Christianity you left yes. you returned to 20 years later right which probably if we would asked you at the time you'd left or when you're five years into that hey how likely is it that you would return to the I don't know I, I'm, I can only guess you'd probably be like well
3: probably really low probably oh, really I would have said chin. like let me talk to that person who wants to come back here in 20 years and I'm going to tell them what a sellout and a fraud like I would have <laughs> I would have been pretty upset about the possibility.
0: Yeah, you bring up something I think that's really interesting, though. That's way harder It's easier, way easier said than done, and it's something we talk a lot about in family brands. Like, can we create and hold space for every member of our family to be who they are as they are? Right. Like, because it's really easy, in my opinion and in my experience, to create and hold space for people when they're who you want them to be and they're making all the choices that you would want them to make but when they're not like like yourself like i have a child maybe who departs from the path of the the church or the religion or the faith i would prefer right well can i still create and hold space for them and the scary thing i think about this idea of holding that space is in space they can move even further away that's right but in space they also there's the space to come back
3: yeah totally
0: and so i just think your story is just awesome and and there was this research we read one time that kind of formed a lot of our opinions about family brand and the categories we have families create values in.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And this one particular researcher went and lived with this family that they had deemed to be like a strong healthy connected family. And while living with the family, the researcher described this experience where they said there was a deeply deeply religious family. I mean they read the Bible every night together. There was you know spiritual and religious like, you know, monuments if you will all over in their home and just different artifacts and and said, while living with the family, he gets a letter from his son in college, this like seven page letter that's telling him, Hey dad, I've, I'm not, I'm no longer going to be a member of your faith. And I, I actually don't even believe in God. Mm-hmm. And the researcher's like, man, are you going to like, what How are you going to respond? And does that affect you? And does that upset you? And are you going to tell him like that he's wrong? And the dad kind of chuckles and he goes, Oh no. He's like, I, I had my, you know, faith journey in my life. And I would never want to risk the relationship with my son Hmm. over his beliefs like i'll just i'm just gonna love him and i'm sure he'll figure it out yeah (laughs) and the researcher was like blown away right
3: yeah
0: and so i just love that story that man can we really create and hold space for people when they are on their journey when they are right Right. because i'd hope they would do the same for us you know Totally,
3: yeah. You're, that I love that. It reminds me. There's a beautiful image in Zen Buddhism. Suzuki Roshi. He says, "How do you control an ox? This kind of unmanageably fierce beast. How do you how do you control an ox? You give it a wide pasture. Just let it loose. And at some point, it, it does its ox thing, and then it just lays down in the meadow. There's I love a little, that. There's a wisdom in that. But we thrash when we feel doubt. When we feel uncertainty when a family member disrupts our homeostasis we have our highly codependent manipulative ways of shaming them into staying exactly the same so that we don't have to feel our own disturbance and our own doubts so it's a real it's a process (laughs) did i put enough fine i put a fine enough point on that (laughs) yeah you said it amazingly well
2: (laughs) one other Gift that I think you have, Thomas, that I think you could bring to this conversation. It's a little more tactical mm. is I know that you meditate every day. Um, you have a practice, and that's something that we've been wanting to bring more into our family, you know, mm. our young kids. How would you if you were you know, just starting this being exposed to this idea for the first time of mindfulness, meditation and trying to bring it into your family? How would you maybe suggest that a family could do that?
3: Yeah, (laughs) I have a few ideas about this. I get this question a lot. And now that I'm a dad, I'm like kind of doing field research with it. Mm -hmm. my son's a year and a half. And, you know, it's a it's a question for me. Developmentally speaking, I think learning like formal meditation starts to be really important in adolescence. That's my opinion. I have. I I could defend that, but I'll just leave it simple for now. Like when we get into adolescence, I think like actually sitting still and doing some breathing and de-stressing, that can be really beneficial. Prior to adolescence, there's a certain youthful innocence we all have with us. I, I, I hear stories of children whose parents meditate, they'll flip on a guided meditation at night and they love to like do the visualization and the breathing and they fall right to sleep. And other kids don't. So I'd say like, you know, some kids will be into that, some won't. But what I am very confident in is that if parents have an intention to be mindful, if they have a, a practice and a presence in the household, and every time they're interacting with their children, their children are getting this implicit message and teaching of undivided attention is the greatest devotion we can pay to each other then then that child will be meditated by his or her parents right so i i think as parents we have a tremendous role to play in just having our own practice and creating the environment and kids might want to go along with it or not depending on their personality their disposition and then getting into adolescence i think it becomes more of a, a universal issue of as our brains start to develop, we we start to get stressed because we're starting to kind of spin over all the things that could go wrong, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So that's when mindfulness, I think, becomes more universally applicable. And prior to that, if we can just like create the environment these kids grow up in, I think that makes quite a big difference. So sorry, parents, the onus is on us. This is my kind of emphasis. Oh,
2: I like it. That is, and I like what you said about the undivided attention that that is what can create that's that space for
3: he, our, he, our young children right it's palpable i mean we all know we know the experience of like i'm talking to someone and they're 90% here and 10% like waiting for a phone call or they're 50% here and 50% wishing they were talking to someone else other than me right now we feel that and it, it's it's um it's kinesthetic and like for the sages and the teachers and the saints in our lives that when we're with them, we feel like the most important person on the planet. That's presence. That's Mm -hmm. undivided attention. That's mindfulness. And if a kid gets 1 million experiences of that growing up, they'll become that for other people, I think, quite organically. That's my opinion.
2: Love that. Yeah.
0: I was just thinking about the fact that how much that actually has to do with identity yes like think of the identity of a child who grows up in a home where they are given a lot of undivided attention right where the the parents are present the children are present there's some sort of like there's some form of whether it's meditation or mindfulness or breathing but there's just like this this energy in the home of like presence and mindfulness yeah man that would do a lot to shape a child's identity of how they see themselves and and right. the parents right and i love how you started like the very first thing you said when i asked you a question you said well you know what i do is rooted rooted in meditation and a meditative practice and that's so much of like my foundation yeah and i think i mean i'm gonna make a guess here but i'm pretty sure that like you said that your your doubt and your faith when it first happened was really really like disruptive and it was really unsettling yeah and then you found meditation mm-hmm. How much was meditation
3: critical in your development of your identity? Oh, man. Oh, yeah. I mean, to me, meditation, and just to define, I mean, it can mean different things. But for me, in that moment in life, I was 18 when I started a daily practice. And just sitting still was my meditation. Like, just sitting still, noticing my breath, maybe using, like, a mantra or a syllable to keep me on track. Just a basic meditation practice. But it it taught me how to not abandon myself. So like another way of saying this undivided attention, like even when I felt awful, especially when I felt awful and unlovable and parts of me that I didn't wanna be part of me that were parts of me, that just sitting in my stillness, it taught me to like continue to practice a basic kindness towards those parts of myself. The learning was hard, it was painstaking and slow, but it was like unmistakably moving in that direction it taught me how to just hold on to myself. And hopefully I've kind of, you know, to some extent, bring that to my family and my friends and, you know, not abandon them in their own unlovability, right?
2: Yeah, I love that, That's <laughs> cool. it looks, it's beautiful.
0: Um, One last thought, there is this idea in Family Brand that a lot of the research shows that like strong, connected, healthy families had like a shared spirituality. Mm-hmm. But it was bigger than like any one thing, meaning mm-hmm. you could actually have family members in the same home that belong to different religions mm-hmm. and still like have a, something that unifies them above that, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Right. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's important or like what, how do you think, and maybe, maybe this isn't, I don't know if this is something you ever touch on or talk about, but one of the, one of the, one of the, we call them the seven critical categories that we have families create values and one of them is called we believe. And it's to help a family create a value around shared like spirituality or a shared belief in something greater than themselves. Mm-hmm. And it, it can be synonymous with a religion. It doesn't have to be, I guess, I'm just curious, like, what, yeah, what do you think about that? Like that idea of a family and how that might play into this idea of navigating faith crises or giving people space to have different beliefs and opinions and ideas. But, but yet at the same time as a family unit, still having something
3: mm-hmm
0: that we believe in that's bigger than us like any thoughts around that from i know i'm just springing springing that on you here in the moment but
3: no it's i mean i'll i'll it's a beautiful question i don't know how i can respond but i I have an impression that and i'm i'm borrowing from a developmental theory here when i say this like the way we human beings develop traditionally in our traditional identity we know that we belong to our family because like we we look alike and we sound alike and we we believe the same things and we we go to church on Sundays or we don't we go to brunch to whatever our family does we through concrete acts we know we belong right mm-hmm. and then as our identities we grow into our adulthood as we become more like subtle and nuanced and unique in our own adult personhood there's a, there's an interiority that we share. So it's like, I know my parents love me. I know I'm connected to them or my siblings, because like, you know, we can have a conversation and just resonate with one another's hearts or at the level of ideas, there's exchange and there's mutual respect. So we, we go from concrete activities where we all spend time together and do these things to more subtle activities of I'm just I'm just an exchange and reciprocity with the family. And, and this is actually where a lot of the breakdown occurs when the ideas change. And when we get different ideas, like that ability to connect can be severely disrupted. So one way I would take this and the developmental models point to this too, how do we find something deeper than even belief that unites us? And there are, there are different ways to access this, but I'll, I'll just say as a meditator, I found to be invaluable. Can we can we learn to like really experience stillness together, stillness, silence, spaciousness as we do this, we touch into our fundamental sameness, our unity. Like whatever it is, the stillness in me is the same stillness that's in you. Whatever it is that's aware in me and intelligent and alive, it's the same awareness, intelligence, and life in you. Prior to any thoughts, prior to any beliefs, prior to any sense of who I am, there's something that's so same about us that it's inviolable. It can't be threatened. Different families can ritualize how they touch into this invincible sameness. But if they can find that from there, then the difference is no longer threatening, but stimulating. It's like, oh, we're so the same. Like we're we're like buried in the heart of God and universal love or whatever we call it. We're the the same substance. We could never be separate from each other. In which case, I'm not threatened by like, I think your political ideas are totally cuckoo, but I'm so the same with you that it doesn't matter at all. Right? So I don't know if I'm responding adequately to the question, but if we can find the deep, deep, deep sameness, then the difference is stimulating. If we're caught in the difference, the difference is very threatening and even corrosive. So back we're back to this path of opposites. I started at the beginning in identity crisis with stability and change. I think sameness and difference, if we feel totally disrupted and disconnected in our family life. It might be time to really get serious about how can we ritualize like the sameness. I, I that, this is my worldview. In, in Buddhism, it's Buddha nature. In Christianity, it's uh, it's atonement that actually it's our it's our being animated through the love of Christ that makes us the same. Whatever your worldview, to to find the sameness that we can agree on and connect to, then the difference is easy to work with. It's fun. We want it's the spice of life so.
2: and it is you're right when when fundamental ideas or beliefs change for a member of the family it's so easy to go straight to like oh we're so different now. right and to create you know a, a gap whether that's you know I don't know you just you just feel different so I yes. love what you're saying about you no, know, at the root of it all like finding the sameness yes and how healing that
3: can be right it's threatening though, because to find that sameness, that stillness, it requires us to let go of everything we think we know about ourselves and the world and others. We have to like kind of strip ourselves down into our, you know, our, our, our just raw vulnerability. Stillness, silence, openness is profoundly vulnerable. But if we can meet each other together in this vulnerability, good things happen in my experience.
0: It's amazing. I think you just gave us some really great ways to talk about that particular category. If we believe that, like we're, we're striving for sameness, that's bigger than any one of yes. us. Yes.
3: Yeah. Totally. Yeah. We believe that there's something inviolably, inviolably. That's hard to say. We believe there's something like so profoundly the same in one another that we share and we will always share that no difference between us can actually threaten us. That that's how I might respond to that it's beautiful man
2: (laughs) beautiful would you have any final final thoughts
3: well this impression came up a moment ago i'm just feeling like i don't know if the moment has passed i I think it's just a story i love to tell because it's pure goodness and i and i love the work you guys do with families so i'll just offer it because it's another i mean I've, i've spoken i hear like the amount of Buddhism I've injected into this—I <laughs> love it. <laughs> this this yeah. interview, I'm, I'm mindful of that. I appreciate your open, you know, just your your attention and your your interest. Uh, but really, from the school of developmental psychology, there's uh, an abundance of insights into how do human beings grow in a healthy way. How can families develop and grow and change in a healthy way? My colleague. Uh, I remember we were driving to a retreat. We were teaching together in Portland, and my wife was in the car and she was pregnant with baby June. And my colleague, she's uh, almost twice my age, and she's a a career educator and developmentalist. She's one of the world's experts in the subject, and she's raised kids. So, of course, we're hanging on her every word like, hey, how can we be parents? And what she said is so simple. I'll never forget. It brings me joy every time I think of it. But she said, with your kids, all you got to do is want them. That was 50 years of research and education. Wow. Like all you have to do is want them. Hmm. And like the more I live into that, the more it's back to this undivided quality. Like when I see June, like everything in me, is just like, I want you no matter what. And and like June's a kid, like we, we have an easier time, I think, as adults, like wanting a one year old. Sometimes it's not that easy to want a one year old. <laughs> but what about like the inner one year old in us 40 and 50 and 60 year olds like, oh, you're having an identity crisis. Oh, you left this faith tradition that means everything to you. We, we go to I don't want you in a split second. But like what if we as parents, as brothers, sisters, as like family members and people who share a community? What if we just like wanted each other no matter what? Like Chris, you're in an identity crisis right now and I don't like your tone with me, but man, I want you and I want this crisis. It's mine too. I care about you. I'm not going anywhere. Like what if we just wanted each other? So that that's the teaching that's so alive in me and I, have, I haven't I have even begun to explore the depths of it like my, my colleague and my teacher has, but it, I love the question and the practice. And-
2: that was a mic drop.
3: i'm glad we included it i thought we were done i'm like no that's a good story i want to talk about (laughs) it's actually even maybe
0: man we talk about belonging and now that's the greatest desire we all have but i think even another way maybe more powerful is to say like to feel wanted like you can't feel like you belong without yeah that's that's amazing
3: developmentally speaking we feel wanted far before we feel belonging In terms of just what comes into our system as we're growing up as, like, the day we're born, it's the experience of, like, when we come out that birth canal, does the world want me or not? That is the first impression we get. We get it, I think, in the womb, I believe. And it starts from there.
0: Yeah, maybe belonging is actually what
3: you feel when you do feel wanted. Maybe that's the outcome right? It's like, yeah, developmentally, we can't actually feel deep belonging unless like we feel wanted prior wow. to it. it unfolds developmentally. So, right. So you're, it's a deep teaching. She said it and I didn't, she said this years ago, whenever a couple of years ago, and I was just like, whatever she just said, like, there is so much truth in that. I don't even know what to do with it. So it's, it's fun to share with you too and reflect on it now. It means so much.
0: Man, yeah, it's really incredible. Well, you've like, Blown us away, Thomas. I'm so glad that you agreed to come. And, 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 uh, real quick, where can our listeners learn more about you and the amazing work you
3: do? Right now, I do my work for a nonprofit called Lower Lights. So you can go to the website is lowerlightswisdom.org. And we have, you know, all this stuff, you know,
2: reading. Yeah, what are you Well I have a, I have
3: a podcast which is really fun to do. It's called Mindfulness Plus with Thomas McConkie. So they're bite-sized lessons on mindfulness that you can do in your day. Um, we have online courses and blogs and you know, content yeah. if you're interested. And we'll provide obviously a link to all this in the show notes so
0: you can access that directly if you want. Okay, a couple couple of questions that I never tell our guests we're gonna ask them. Are you ready for me to spring a couple on you? <laughs> sure. No right or wrong.
3: Because this has been Tightly choreographed up until yeah. now. We had everything, everything rehearsed with Thomas. have sprung
2: any questions. Including
3: pretending that I didn't know if I was going to share that last story. Yeah, that's yeah. right. It all unfolded just <laughs> as planned. <laughs> I, and I
0: know that your, Gloria is not here to share this with you, but just off the top of your head, if I was like, hey, Thomas, what would you say that when you think about your family, right? With your you, Gloria, June, baby June, your family brand. What do you guys stand for more than anything
3: mm. what
0: what comes up for you unconditional kindness love that okay if I was to say, hey Thomas what do you and what do you and your family want to be remembered for one day like you're like let's let's look out into the future 10 20 30, 40 50 years from now and other me and Melissa are sitting around one day and we're like, oh man Thomas and
3: glory they're just devotion devotion to a good cause it's awesome.
0: I love asking these questions because i'm always inspired by what people just what what comes up for them you know like unconditional kindness and devotion to a good cause
3: it's like yeah those are powerful ideas that you could really build yeah a lot of things around it was fun to like muster all my confidence and like try to stick the landing there because i'm like what would Gloria say? She's not gonna say unconditional <laughs> kindness. So, so no, I no, think just, we need your help. We need some coordination in our family. <laughs> I don't think we're all No, on I love the same it because I don't
0: I just don't think as families we you know, we think a lot about it in our person in our in our like maybe business brands and things like that. But it's just fun <clears throat> questions to consider. Yeah. It's like what well, yeah, what do we stand for? What would we want to be remembered for someday?
3: I feel the power of it. It's beautiful. And I can see how that would allow families to cohere together. To create a deeper coherence and get moving in the same direction that's that's gorgeous yeah what what beautiful work
2: Thomas it's been a delight so appreciate you and your time and and who you are in, in the world and what you're doing thank you so much
3: thank you yeah I've enjoyed it so much I love you guys Hey there, thanks for listening to today's episode.
1: To show our appreciation, we want to offer you a free gift. We have an incredible online course you can get now by going to familybrand.com or by following the link in the show notes.
0: And while you're there at familybrand.com, be sure to follow us on social media so that we can go on this journey together.
1: Lastly, if this podcast has impacted you, we ask that you share it with another powerful family in your life and be sure to subscribe or follow so you never miss an episode.
0: We will see you in the next episode.